0: As always, it is our joy to open the Word of God together, and we're going to be asking ourselves the question, what does the Bible say from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18? James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. You know, our, our message this morning, I, I've titled Pray, Pray, Pray Some More, um, and there, there's a lot going on in this passage, and, and for several reasons, as we'll find out in a moment, it's actually one of the more hotly debated and uh, as far as the different interpretations of specific elements within this passage. So we're gonna look at that together and that's why it's always important that when we come to these passages, we ask, what does the Bible say? Not what do I think or what is my opinion or what is the current trend of modern evangelicalism, is what does the Bible say and what does it say to uh, the original hearer, and what does it say to us in the timeless principles that God has given it to us through. Now, as we're doing that, let me just ask, just to make sure that at least more than one of us is awake, Um, A quick participation question, in what circumstances and emotions and situations do we find ourselves often praying? Difficult ones. When we're in difficult circumstances, we find ourselves praying. That's like the number two answer on the board, Drew Michael, ding, 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 all right. What else? What are other circumstances or situations in which we find ourselves praying? When we don't know what to do next, when we are looking for wisdom, Ooh, she was cheating back to James chapter one, very good. What are other places in which we pray, circumstances and situations? I'm sorry. Thankfulness. thankfulness, yeah, thankfulness. We come to God and we thank Him for what He has done and what He will do. Anything else? Any other situations or circumstances in which we pray? When we want something, when we want something. always when we want the right thing? Huh, sometimes. Sometimes not. Sometimes we come to pray with our motives instead of God's motives when we pray. Well, what we're gonna see this morning, as we look into James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, that if, of all the things that this passage is remembered for, what it should be remembered for is a model for prayer. So let's read together, James chapter 5, verse 13. But above, oh, I'm in the wrong. No, I am, sorry, I was in verse 12. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person, a righteous man, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Verse 18, then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. God bless the reading of his word. So there's a lot going on in this passage, but there's a few things that are abundantly clear, right? And one of those is that regardless of how you interpret various elements, that are within this passage, there is almost universal acknowledgement that this passage is first and foremost and primarily about the topic of prayer. So let's not be confused or led astray by that today. today. I think our fear when we come to passages like this that have weird nuances in them is that we're going to spend all of this afternoon thinking about like, that one weird part that we all can't agree on, instead of saying, God, what do you want me to do as an attitude of prayer, as a result of what I have heard in your word today? So the most important thing that we can take away is how do we think about prayer in all circumstances? How do we think about prayer in all seasons? We need to pray, pray, pray some more, both you and I. And by the way, if we're wondering if that's true, let's just look at it once again. I'm gonna start in verse 13 this time, not verse 12, because that completely threw me off. I need bigger font. Verse 13 says this, then he must pray. Verse 14, they are to pray over him. Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith. Verse 16, pray for one another. The effective prayer. Verse 17, he prayed earnestly. By the way, in the original, that means he prayed, prayed. We get a bonus word for prayer in there. He prayed, prayed. He prayed earnestly in verse 18, he prayed again. So in the original language, there is the word for prayer eight times in six verses. This is a passage about prayer. And I want us to see five responses that you and I should practice this week. Five ways that we should respond to God's word in this passage. Five biblical responses to the seasons, the moments, the circumstances, the emotions of this life be they difficult, be they Thanksgiving, be they in times of need or want. How are we going to respond? We're going to start in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Once again, I love when I get the opportunity to study and to look back because in the original language, verse 13 starts with this word suffering. James is really saying, suffering anyone? That's what he said. Suffering anyone? Cheerful anyone? Sick? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone in the house? That's what James is asking us, right? Now, by the way, for the most part, these are rhetorical questions, right? He's not asking for a show of hands. He knows that he is writing to a people who are suffering, right? If you turn back just one page, look at how this letter starts. James to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, James one, James two. consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. So when James says, suffering anyone, he already knows the answer. He knows that he is writing to a people that are suffering. James is not confused, right? In fact, he even reminded us earlier in this very chapter in James five that there were people that were suffering under unrighteous and unjust employers, right? There was suffering that was going on. And so James is saying, hey, to you that are suffering, listen up, perk up your ears. And in this room today, I think I can say with confidence that I don't need a show of hands because I think most of us would reflect just on the past week not any further than that and say, there were days this past week that were hard. There were days this past week that I felt like I was suffering. There were days this past week that I was weary, that I was bearing up under hardship. It was hard this week to walk on this earth with endurance in a way that honors and pleases the God who loves me, who created me, who gave his son for me. It was hard. Now the other thing that we're gonna notice as we go through these five responses, is that they're not mutually exclusive, right? At one point in our lives, you or I could claim that we were all either suffering or cheerful or sick or sinful or righteous, but there are times when we are some of those things all at one time. A couple of nights ago, I was watching a movie with some of my older kids. Uh, Once our kids get of a certain age, we, we have this tradition we call big kid movie night, right? So the little kids go to bed, the big kids come and make a mess in mom and dad's room on the floor with popcorn, and we watch movies that usually have more intense themes, right, and it's a great time to bond with our older children and to kind of share some of these things with them, and also, by the way, it it provokes fantastic dialogue sometimes about what God says and what media says and and who's right, and by the way, the answer is clear. But a couple weeks ago, we were watching a show and my oldest daughter looks over at me and it was one of those really intense movies. It's almost at the end, it's kind of the climax of the movie. We think we're gonna win, but at, the, but at, the, at great loss. And she looks over and she's like, Dad, I have so many emotions right now. I was like, whew, okay. Well, you're gonna be fun as you get older. You're only 14, this is going to be crazy, Lord. But like, that's it. She had so many emotions, right? She was so excited that the good guys were going to win, but she knew that this guy probably wasn't going to make it. And there's so many emotions. And for you and I, sometimes we go through our lives and we have so many emotions. We are so many things pressing around us, right? We have joys and sorrows, we have suffering and successes all at the same time. And in the midst of all of those things, all of those moments of life, James is going to remind us that in each of these situations, the response is a response of prayer. The response is a response of prayer, a response of praise, a response of communication to our Heavenly Father, our Creator, our Sovereign God, our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the one who rules over all of these circumstances, all of these emotions that we got going on. He's it, he's God, and we submit ourselves to him he has a perfect will, a perfect plan. He will work in and through each of these things to accomplish his good purpose, which he has designed so that if we just flip back one page again, James 1.12, this is what God is doing. He's saying, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He is approving us. He is confirming us through the things that he is bringing into our lives. So the main idea this morning is that in every season and time of our lives, believers should pray. In every season, and time, and emotion, and circumstance of our lives, believers should pray. We should pray, pray, and pray some more. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, it says, rejoice always, in verse 16 through 18, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul was saying, James is saying, you can have joy always. You can be praying without ceasing always. You can in everything give thanks. By the way, that's a great conversation to have with your children over and over and over and over again because all of our children do is they just reflect our own hearts as adults sometimes, right? And I'm like, you need to give thanks in everything. And I'm like, not giving thanks right now. Look at dad's face, right? (laughs) You need to rejoice always in everything. We need to give thanks in everything. We need to pray without ceasing. The way that we can do that, regardless of the state of our circumstances, regardless of our suffering, regardless of our sickness, is because of who God is. This suffering, this word means to, to bear uh, hardship patiently, right? To bear hardship patiently. See, oftentimes we come to pray. Um, Mr. Econominus over here was reminded us that sometimes we pray because we want things. And sometimes we pray in difficult circumstances, as Mr. Michael over here mentioned to us, right? And what does that mean? That means that sometimes we come to God and we're like praying, God, take this away but that's not actually what James is getting at the heart of here. He is saying we suffer hardship patiently because God is working through that. See, when God takes those things away, we don't often get as refined and as conformed to the image of his son as he wants us to. It is through suffering hardship patiently. That's what this word means. Is anyone among you suffering like those who had been mistreated both earlier in this chapter or earlier in this letter? By the word, this. word, the same word suffering is used by Paul in two, uh, a couple different places. Second Timothy two nine, Paul writes this to Timothy, his child in the faith. He says, "For which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned." He's saying, "I'm suffering. I'm bearing up under it patiently because the word of God is going forth. And though I may be imprisoned, the word of God is not. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not. The work of God is not." Paul was writing to Timothy, his child in the faith, and he was saying he was suffering hardship. And then, of course, the good pastor that Paul is, he writes to Timothy in Timothy 4.5, you be sober in all things. You endure hardship. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. He's saying, I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel. Timothy, prepare yourself. Arm yourself. Gird yourself. Put your trust in the Lord because you are going to suffer hardship for the work of the evangelist. And because Paul is so gracious, he did not want to leave you or I out either. And so in the same letter, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when we say, is anyone among you suffering this morning? The answer probably is yes. We've had a hard week. It's not been easy. And God says, this is what I am doing for you in Jesus Christ. This is what I am doing in your life is that I am refining you and making you more like myself. So we can, with confidence, with James say, suffering anyone, yeah. We don't have to lie to ourselves. Suffering anyone, yeah. What are we doing with that? Are we bearing up patiently under that? The second response that John's reminds us this morning is cheerful anyone, he is to sing praises. If we're suffering and we are to pray, he says cheerful we are to sing praises. We just looked at 1 Thessalonians 5.16 where it says rejoice always. You know in just a few moments we're gonna have um, our main service Some of you still call it big church, since you were three, and that's okay. But in our main service, we're going to have a time of singing. And during that time of singing, some of us are going to be there, and we're going to be standing. And we're going to be opening our mouths. And out of our mouths and out of our hearts is going to come praise. And while we do that, we're going to do so hopefully in a cheerful, joyful attitude towards our Lord But that does not negate all of the other things that are going in our hearts and our minds and our souls at that exact same moment. That does not negate the circumstances of this past week. And so we are both suffering and cheerful all at the same time. Praise God for that. Praise God for that, that he has given us an ability in his spirit to be joyful in all things. Proverbs 15, 15 says this. By the way, many of you, like me, work in a a secular workplace, and um, one of the things I in, in started doing a couple years ago is some people ask me, they're like, well, how do, you, how, do you, how do you manage your employees? How do you work with people? How do you do these things? And, uh, and I've started, um, as often as the Lord brings it to mind, I'd be like, can I share an ancient proverb with you? Can I share an ancient proverb with you? And they're like, man, that's great. Where, where is that from? I'm like, it's from the Bible, because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes that's all I say, but what a great opportunity. Can I share a proverb with you? An ancient proverb. Proverbs 15, 15 says this, all of the days of the afflicted are bad. All of the days of the afflicted are bad, right? For the afflicted, every day's bad. This day's better than that one, still bad. This day bad, that day bad. Birthday bad, Christmas bad. All day's bad. But a cheerful heart has a continual feast. How beautiful is that? A cheerful heart has a continual feast. I'm going to print that out and slap it on my pantry. The kids open that door, there's like 17,000 items of food in there. What are we going to eat, Dad? A cheerful heart is a continual feast, right? Solomon in his wisdom was reminding us that when we are afflicted, everything is bad. We're like Eeyore, right? We're like, oh, Pooh Bear. Oh, Piglet. Oh, woe is me. I lost my tail again. I don't know where it's at, right? Like everything is bad. If we're not careful, we can be that person. We can say, woe is me, Lord, woe is me. Every day can be a woe is me day. Every day can be an affliction. But for the cheerful, every day can be a feast. Every day can be a feast. This, cheerful, this word cheerful, by the way, is, is interesting. It has this aspect of to be encouraged or really to take courage as part of it, right? Because cheerfulness isn't something that just we fall backwards into. So, so the idea here is, is not that cheerfulness is a result of living your best life now. It's not like your best day ever. It's like, woo, 2023, this is where it's at. No, cheerfulness is a disposition of our souls as we reflect on who God is. What he has done and what he will do and what he has promised in his word, that is what cheerfulness is. In the midst of our challenging situations, we have joy and we praise and we exalt our savior because he is our king. Suffering anyone? We should pray. Cheerful anyone, let us sing praises? Response number three, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Sick? Anyone? And of course, this is where things just get all kinds of uninteresting, right? Now, before we dive too deep into these passages, specifically verses 14 and 15 here, Let's make a couple of disclaimers because there's a lot of things going on here and there's a lot of good and godly individuals that disagree on some aspects of this passage. So let's walk through them together but first let's read the two verses just so we can remind ourselves. James 5:14. is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins they will forgive him. They'll be forgiven him. So quickly, Some things, is anyone among you sick? Are we talking about physical sickness? Are we talking about spiritual sickness? It says we should anoint him with oil. What does this anointing mean? Is it a sacrament, as some would say today? We would not go that option. Is it symbolic? Is it medicinal? We don't think about oil that way, but that was common in that day. And then if we are anointing, if we're using oils, what kind of oils should we use? Should we use essential oils? Should we use olive oil? For some of us in the South, maybe we just use Penn's oil, right? I mean, what oil are we using? It says restore the one who is sick. What does restore mean? If it's physical sickness, is it physical restoration? If it's spiritual sickness, is it spiritual healing? What does this mean? It says the Lord will raise him up. Raise him up who, where, when, why? If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. There's a lot going on. And to be fair, I think there are very good reasons why good and godly individuals will disagree on the scope of this passage, but as we look together, let's back up for just a moment and remind ourselves, what is the primary narrative of this passage? What is the main idea of this passage? The main idea is that in every season and time of life, believers should pray. The most important thing is that in any and every circumstance, we pray. Prayer is the verb here, prayer is the imperative here. We are calling together people to pray. Verse 13, individuals were praying. And then when we get to verse 14 and 15, we're bringing together the leadership of the church, the under shepherds of Christ, those whom God has appointed to lead his flock, and we're asking them to pray. Verse 16, we're gonna see that we pray for one another in the body of Christ, that should be our normative behavior. And so we pray together. We should be praying in small groups. This is how the body of Christ loves and serves and ministers and encourages and builds up one another according to the word of Christ. God through James then in verse 17 and 18, he's gonna give us a model of prayer. He's gonna use this very famous individual from Israel's past to communicate to these dispersed tribes what a model of prayer looks like and what effective prayer looks like and why that effective prayer is not unreachable for you and I today because this famous individual had a nature like ours, the word of God declares. But in verse 14, let's look at this. Is anyone among you sick now this word sick is used of actual sickness about 60% of the time that it's used in the New Testament, right, and about 40% of the time it is translated in our English Bible either the word weak or weaknesses. Now of that, almost exclusively, the Greek word is used sick or sickness, it's in the narrative portions of the New Testament. I know I'm getting technical, sorry, we'll be quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Most of the time, when this Greek word is translated in English, sick, sickness, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. There's a couple of exceptions to that rule, and those exceptions are of Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, and Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I left Trophimus, and I kept journeying on because the dude was sick. Everyone agrees, like, dude is probably physically sick. Didn't feel like traveling that day. Maybe he had the stomach bug. Every other occurrence of the word in the epistles, outside of the usage previously described in James 14, it always uses the word weak. Such as Romans 14.1, now accept the one who is weak in faith. 2 Corinthians 11.21, to my shame I must say that we have been weak. And there's other examples that we could go through. So I think if we study just the word itself, I think it's hard to be dogmatic either way. We can't be conclusive just by looking at that word. So what else should we do? Well then we should look at the context of the passage. And if you look at both the preceding and the following verses, there's really no kind of tie in to physical sickness really going on. There's suffering, there's other things. Um, in fact, if you look at verse 16, which we'll get to in a moment, it says confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So it's talking about sin. It's talking about a spiritual ailment that is wailing on these people. There's sins, there's prayer, there's healing. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, without cheating on whoever is speaking next week, because it might be Wade, I don't know. Okay, Wade, sorry about that. If I, if I blow it all right here, we're good. Uh, but the, verse, uh, the word restore in verse 15 is the same Greek word in verse 20 when it says save his soul from death, right? So we're talking about a sickness that is tied to sin. So that would almost say that, well, this is talking about a spiritual sickness. Now then there are some that would say, well this really is talking about a person who is so sick because of unrepentant sin. They are so sick that I need the elders of the church to come, in fact I'm so sick that I can't get up which is why I have to call them, Um, I think, it's not clear that the calling means they actually have to like leave where they're going to get to you, but you know, we could see that there. I think that's that's definitely an option. And it says when it says raise him up, is it talking about raising him up to physical health? That word raise him up is often used of being restored physically, of either raise from the dead or get up your palate and walk, is some of the words that are used with that word. So there's a lot of things going on there, right? Finally, there's those that believe that the sickness is intended. For those that believe that the sickness is intended to be physical, they point at the end of verse 15 where it says, if he has committed sins, as if it is some kind of optional thing in the person who is sick. And now, we do know that that's true, right? We see this in John chapter nine, verse one through three. Jesus is going along, it says, and Jesus passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. And you know the story, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, whose sin, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so there's obviously precedent in scripture for God declaring that there are people that are suffering physical ailments that are not tied as the direct outcome of sin. Obviously we live in a sin-stained world though, right? So what do we do with all this information? Like Ben, those were a lot of cool words you just said, like so what? Well, what we do with this is when we are weak, when we are feeble, when we are weary, we need prayer. We need prayer. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church. So while I I tend to be more in the this is a spiritual sickness camp, the reality is is that it's not that clean a break because in our sin-stained world, our spiritual sickness and our physical sickness often are like this, right? In fact, I'm gonna pause for a moment and I want someone to share with me what are some sins that can lead to physical manifestations or physical sicknesses or diseases? Anxiety, stress, Stress. Sexual sexual sins can have devastating physical consequences, right? The sin of gluttony can have devastating physical consequences. Carousing and other forms of sexual sin, anxiety, giving ourselves over to drunkenness, giving ourselves over to the boastful pride of life that can lead to eating disorders and all kinds of physical ailments and physical challenges. You know, I was just reminded recently, Angela took me to the AR late one night, years ago. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was age 32, average height and weight. The clinicians decided that I was not having a heart attack and while they couldn't uh, be definitive in their diagnosis, the predominant one was that I was suffering a physiological response to work-related stress. And if you're in the workplace today, you can maybe empathize with that. Those were hard times in our lives. There were hard times in our marriages, to be honest. You see, the sin of anxiety, not putting my faith and trust in the God I knew, the God I loved, not trusting him to handle my circumstances, was leading me to a place of literal physical distress in my life. And you know what I needed? I needed prayer. That's what I needed. I needed prayer. I needed people to pray for me, to pray with me. I needed to be a person of prayer. I needed to be careful to understand that I was under a God who was in control of all of those circumstances. I somehow thought that if I had a bad meeting or a bad day or a work, bad work day that I could let that ruin my day. And if I had a great day, I could be like, "Woo, dancing on cloud 9," right? But my God was unchanging in all of that. And I had sat in judgment on him. And I was walking in sin. The fruit of the spirit, joy, peace, patience. They had left me. I needed someone to pray for me. So whether... The sickness is physical or not, one thing is clear is that when a believer in Jesus Christ is in dire straits, they call for the elders of the church and the elders of the church are to pray. Because the reality is that most times we do not call. Right? In our pride, we hide. In our shame, we hide. We don't let people in. They text, we don't respond. We call, we say everything's fine. How you doing? Fine, how you doing? Fine, great, we had a good fellowship and we're gonna call it fellowship at church over the coffee pot. Now I'm going to walk this way, you're going to walk that way, I'm going to find a new person. How are you doing? Fine. How are you doing? Fine. We nod, we smile. By the way, the command here is to the individual who is in need that he has to call and say, I need help. I need prayer. I need to pray. And when he does this, the elders are to respond. I was having uh, coffee with one of uh, the elders of Northlake this past week, and we came to the topic of this passage, and I said, well, how do the elders of, of Northlake respond? We weren't talking about the sickness part. We were talking about, like, what does is, what is the response part look like? Um, his response was this. It was simple. It was, says that when the congregation says we need prayer, we pray. That's what we do. That's what the under-shepherds of Christ have been called to do, those that would lead his church. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we have a sniffle or a bad day, we're like, Fring! guys, I need you. It doesn't even mean that every time we call that every elder shows up. What it does mean is that God in his perfect providence has given a gift to the church. He has given a gift to the church and faithful men who have been qualified by him and appointed by him and empowered by him through his spirit. Their job is to feed, care for, watch over, guard, protect, lift up, encourage, and build up the flock of God that is under their care. You know why? Because God's word says they will give an account for that. I'm looking at these men right here. They're going to give an account for that and they know that. And so... You know what they do, they minister to the flock of God primarily through the ministry of the word of God and prayer. That is what elders do. They pray for the body, they pray for the flock that God has entrusted to their care. And oftentimes, the only way the elders know what is going on, know how best to pray for someone is if someone calls. You guys phones are gonna blow up today, I apologize for that. <clears throat> just, just turn on do not disturb, right? No, but the command is to the individual to call and they will come over and pray, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, now once again, there's some that say this anointing could be medicinal in nature. I think that's a little bit of a challenge because although they did use oil as medicinal purposes in that day and time, it really wasn't a like, uh, used for every ailment and so it would be, seem odd that James would say like, use this one specific ailment for this one specific thing and whatever. So it's probably not that. Um, and so even if the reference is to about physical sickness, it's unlikely that this anointing is intended for medicinal purposes. Craig Blomberg in his commentary helps us with this. He says, it is true that the verb for anoint here is not the uniformly symbolic one. There's multiple words that are translated anoint, and this is not the one that's usually the symbolic one. However, he goes on, it still is one that implies a ritual anointing in eight of its nine New Testament occurrences. So what he's saying is that even though this is the one that is most often used for anointing in a symbolic ritualistic fashion, even outside of that context, eight of the nine times it's used, it's used in a symbolic manner and that seems to fit well here as well. It's also worthy of note that this idea is really only seen one other time and we see it not by way of imperative or command or instruction, but by way of anecdotal evidence. Mark six, Jesus had sent out his disciples. Verse 12 says this. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. But if you look further in that passage, you can see Jesus does not instruct them, and so there's no clear guidance here. We just see that they're doing it. And so we can say, yes, we can see that they're doing it, but we're not exactly sure why. It could have been, but it still could have been symbolic. We don't know. Once again, I think the symbolic route is probably... um, The best explanation, especially in light of remembering that the 12 tribes to whom James is addressing this letter, who is the primary audience? The primary audience is a dispersed group of Israelites. They knew all about anointing. They anointed priests, they anointed kings, they anointed altars, they anointed shields for battle. They did all kinds of anointing things, right? And when they're doing that, they're setting them apart to a purpose. They were setting people apart to roles as priests unto God, as kings of God's people, as instruments of God's worship. That is what they are anointing these things unto. And so when we see an anointing here, I think what we see is we're recognizing that when we come to God and we pray over someone who is in dire need, we are recognizing that they are his. They are set apart unto him. They are his people, his children, his sheep. They are our saviors. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, Jesus declares that you are His and there is nothing that can change that reality. No suffering, no circumstances, no sickness, no weariness. You have been anointed, it says they were anointed in the name of the Lord. And by the way, there's also so many passages about prayer in the New Testament that it's challenging to be dogmatic that we should anoint every time we pray. That's the other question people have. Well, shouldn't the, like, the elders just be running around with like bags of oil, they're just like, going to town. They're, they're oiling this person, they're oiling that person. Um, Once again, Blomberg is helpful. He says, given the overall teaching of the New Testament in which healing is not consistently paired with anointing, we should not take this one verse as mandating that oil must accompany all prayers for the sick. He goes on to write the descriptive phrase in the name of the Lord reminds us that the healing is done solely by the will and power of God. What we're doing is we're consecrating them unto God. They're saying, God, they are yours. You will do with what you will. You are good and loving and trusting. We also know that there are times when God does not heal us. There's some false um, dogmas that have come out of this passage. One of them is that of the faith healers who would say that when we go and pray in such and such a fashion, we dot all the I's and we cross all the T's, we guarantee the outcome of the sick. That's what they're saying. They're saying we can guarantee the outcome of the sick by following a pre-prescribed formula. When we reflect on the entirety of scripture, that's really hard. Uh, to conclude, especially Paul helps us in 2 Corinthians twelve seven. he says this. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. You want to read a lot of infinite theories on things, go read about this thorn in the flesh thing, right? A messenger of Satan to torment me, Paul says, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, I would gladly boast about my weaknesses. I'm well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake, so that the power of Christ might dwell on me. You see, Paul prayed faithfully to the Lord, and there's really no indication that, you know, there's any reason that God may not fulfill this request except for God hath said. God hath said, Paul, Not this time. My grace is sufficient. So we know from the testimony of scripture that there are times when we will pray in faith and God will say, this sickness will remain. This suffering will remain. So why might God do that? Why might God leave us in our sickness and suffering? To see the gospel. To see the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Suffer for the sake of the gospel. Sanctify us. To sanctify us. To conform us more to the image of his son. I mean, this really is James, right? I mean, chapter one, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is saying, Ben, I can take this away from you. But I tell you what, buddy, you're not going to be more holy. You're going you're to figure it out the easy way. You're not going to trust me more. You're not going to have more confidence in me as, as God. There's, there's affliction because we are being refined. We are being tested. God allows us to endure suffering both from external circumstances and sometimes from the afflictions of our own body so that we might learn to walk in obedience to him and trust him. Back in verse 15, James 5:15, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Remember, this is all about prayer. This isn't about anointing or oil or some ritualistic behavior. Those are, those are secondary supporting characters, but it says, and the prayer offered in faith. That is, that is the part that is critical here because prayer brings us into right relationship with God. It brings us into a place where we say, God, you are creator, I am created. You are healer, and I am afflicted. You are a rock. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. You see, it's the Lord's doing it. it is the Lord who raises us up. This prayer offered in faith, what does it mean to say a prayer offered in faith? I think if we go back to James one again, it's pretty simple. It's, a, it's that prayer offered in faith without any doubting. Don't be like the double-minded man like, you know, I got nothing else, so I'll try this prayer thing, see if this, this works today, right? No, we come to God because we recognize who he is. We recognize that, you know, there's, you know, the, the famous question, you know, what do you say when people say, well, how do, how do bad things happen to good people? Like, is, is God really loving? God has said in his word, God is love. When I'm wondering if God is loving or not, what I need to do is I need to look at my heart and say, why don't I trust God or not? Because when God says God is love, then he is love all the time, every single day, in every circumstance, suffering, sick, weary, cheerful, he is love. And right now, the person that needs to get in line with that is me. The Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The Lord is not just interested in our physical well-being, he is interested in our souls. He is interested in his children walking in a manner worthy of the one who has called us to his own kingdom and glory. The response of the suffering is that we should pray. The response of the cheerful is that we should sing praises. The response of the sick and the weak is that we should call for the elders to come alongside us and to pray for us. Verse 16, I've called the response of the sinful. and then verse 17 and 18 have called the response of the righteous. Verse 16 could also be called the response of the righteous. And we'll, we'll talk about why that's true in a moment. But, but for right now, we're going to talk about the response of the sinful. And we see when we get to verse 16 that it starts with this. It starts with the therefore, right? And so we see that this is a response to that which has come before. He's responding to the verses that are just prior to it. You know, in my workplace, we have this concept of corrective actions and preventative actions. In my workplace, we break things all the time. That's technology for you. If it's not broken, we're not moving fast enough, right? Things are broken, and we have corrective actions and preventative actions, and when I was thinking about this, I was thinking verse 14 and 15 is, it is a corrective action, right? We have let something go so long that we need a corrective action. We need to bring in the elders of the church to pray because it is severe. By the way, that's okay, right? Like, we shouldn't be like, oh, well, you know, like, I don't know if I'm that severe or not. Like, I'm on this side of severe or that side of severe. You know, when do I call, not call, right? We... When we are in need, we call for people to pray with us. But verse 16, I would say, is the preventative action. This is the normative behavior of the church. And I'm going to be bold for just a moment and say, if you are not practicing verse 16 here, then you and I need to get in line. Listen to this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. By the way, we see this word healing again. We're talking about soul care, by the way. We're talking about a soul that is sick and weary, and verse 16 makes that so obvious because we are confessing and praying for one another all along the way. That is what the body of Christ does. You see, the problem is when we leave sins unconfessed, when we leave them hidden in our hearts, when we are struggling deeply, it becomes like a cancer in our soul, right? What happens when we leave unconfessed unconfessed sin to fester? What does that look like? What is the outcome of unconfessed sin festering in our souls? I'm sorry. A hardened heart. A hardened heart. Oh yeah. yeah. The scripture talks about our conscience can become seared, we can become calloused. Oh man, the Old Testament had a lot to say a hardened heart. What else? Spiritual maturity comes to a stop. Yeah, we're not growing. We're not participating in those activities that might convict us of our sin or might bring our sin to light, right? That's what happens as we begin to draw ourselves away, We begin to hide ourselves away because of the sin that's in our soul. What else? Other ways that we let unconfessed sin fester. I'm sorry? We isolate, oh yeah. Hebrews 10, right? Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. The body of Christ is in God's goodness to us a gift. And we are, when we are apart from that, man, it is, it's hard. I don't get encouragement. I don't get prayer. I don't get built up one by another. So what are some of the benefits of confessing and praying for one another then? Restored relationships. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to have bitterness in your heart or self against a person when you're coming to them and you're confessing and you're praying. Yeah, what else? Overcoming. I'm sorry? Overcoming. Overcoming sin, right? Because we have a band of brothers, a band of sisters in Jesus Christ coming around us. God works through that. That is what He has commanded. And when we do what He has commanded, then He strengthens us through that. What else? We receive counsel, oh, and even discipline, oh, that's fantastic, correction, right? Sometimes we need the wisdom that can only come from other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, both the wisdom that they may have of this book and of who God is and of what he has done in their life that we do not know, and sometimes just to remind us of what we know, (laughs) like, Ben, you know this, stop thinking like a moron. You know what God's word says. Ben, you need to hear it, you need to be reminded of it. You need to print this verse out, tape it to your desk. We care for one another in the body of Christ. This word healed, by the way, is we see this in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. It is by the blood of Christ that we are healed. Praise God, praise God for that. You know, maybe you've been there, maybe you've had a brother or sister in Christ, they called you up and they said, hey, we need to meet, we need to have lunch, we need to have coffee, grab a Coke, Grab one of those things that looks like coffee but really isn't, it costs more, and it's mostly sugar but we get it at the coffee shop, right? I just need to chat on the phone. I need to talk to you. I need you to know what's going on because I need you to pray for me. You know, in God's goodness to me, he's been faithful in my weakness to bring brothers alongside me over the years. For probably more than five years now, every Tuesday morning you can find me in the same place, virtually. There was a time when physically I would sit across One of those frou-frou coffee shops with a brother in Christ and we would pray together. When COVID hit, we moved to Zoom online. Now in God's providence, we aren't even in the same state anymore. But most Tuesday mornings, you will find me in front of a computer screen praying with my brother Rick. And there's times I gotta say, brother Rick, I need you to pray for me this week because right now I am being anxious. I know God's word is declared I should be anxious for nothing, but there's a situation going on. I need you to tell you about it because I need you to pray for me because right now in my humanness I am weak. I am anything but anxious for nothing and God has said, Ben, be anxious for nothing. I need you to pray for me, brother, because as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as a disciple of Christ, I'm just not doing it. I need you to pray for me this week. There are other brothers, some in this room You and I maybe get together regularly or irregularly to pray for one another. Why? Because you and I are in desperate need of prayer. You and I are in desperate need of prayer. I called this the response to the sinful because we're all sinful, right? We're all coming to this place and confessing our sins and praying for one another because we're sinful people. But the Bible says that we are also righteous. At the end of verse 16, it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much by all. Let me clarify just a moment. The Bible says in Romans 3 that there are none righteous, no not one, but he says for those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, James once again, just flip back one page to James two, twenty-one. was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Praise God that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I can be righteous So we're gonna look at that, the response of the righteous. If you are his disciples, God has declared you righteous on the account of the blood of his son. And this should be our response to him. I, I love this example that he gives. Elijah was a man, verse James 5, 17, with nature like ours, hero of the faith, great prophet of old, did great things, and God's word declares that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yours and mine and he prayed earnestly. He prayed a prayer, it literally says. He prayed, prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain in the earth for three years and six months and he prayed again and the sky poured rain. He was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly. First Kings 17, one, now Elijah the Tishbite who was of the settlers of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, uh, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. But he starts off saying, if God is God and he is, then this is your reality, King Ahab. Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. If you think that sounds like craziness, three years and six months, Jesus himself, Luke 4, 24, he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. The thing that I love about that passage is Jesus actually isn't talking about the rain not stopping. He's talking about something else and he just doesn't, hey, remember that time when it didn't rain for three years and six months? That's a long time. And it happened because there was a man of God empowered by God and he prayed and it did not rain. In verse 18, then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. You see the response of the righteousness, the righteous is to pray like Elijah in both drought and great abundance of rain, in both good times and, and bad times, in both suffering and sickness and cheerfulness, we are to pray, we are to worship him, we are to follow him, we are to pray to him because see all of these things are in his hands as cheerful. We should sing praises. If we are sick and weak, we should reach out to those that can pray with us and for us. If we are sinful, we confess our sins one to another and pray for one another. And all the while remembering that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed and amazing things happened, things that we cannot imagine. I'm going to close with this verse, 1 John 1.9. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is in the business of cleansing you and preparing you for good work. God's desire is to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we come to him in faith and we pray there is healing from sin, his word has declared it. I just wanna leave you with three thoughts this week. The first one is pray individually. Pray individually, right? If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praises. Secondly, pray as leaders, right? Our leaders should be praying for our flock. One of the ways that we can help them with that is is we can let them know and be like, hey, Pastor Dusty, hey, elders, I, I need prayer this week. Could you pray for me about this thing? And then we pray together. I'm gonna be bold here for a minute. I'm gonna challenge everyone in this room with this task. Find one person this week to say one thing to that you need prayer for and pray together. It can be 30 seconds. Find one person this week and say, I need prayer for this one thing and start there. And God will work through his word in your life to empower you to walk in a way that would honor him and please him. May we be a people that praise, praise, praise some more. Let's pray. Let's do that now. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that your word has declared that In you, in your word, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Father, you have given us commands, instruction in how to act in every season and circumstance and emotion of this life. You have called us to be a people of prayer, to be a people of praise, a people that are in good times and hard times and every time acknowledging that our first response should be to run to you. God I just pray this week my my guess is there are people that are suffering in this room today there are people that are sick in this room today Father and they need prayer they need prayer of this body of Jesus Christ to come around them they need prayer of the leadership of the church to pray for them for the elders to pray for them I pray that we would be humble enough to say to one person this week I need prayer I need you to pray for me how can I pray for you? Father, might you strengthen us through your body. Might you encourage and build us up one for another for your glory and the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask all this in your precious name, amen.